This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue opening the minds to the public to what takes place in reality as opposed to what you think takes place ladies and gentlemen welcome to the justice tech pros podcast here's your host dominic crea greetings listeners hope everyone is doing all right i know with the this latest hurricane, this Hurricane Ida, which actually did some damage by uh, where I'm located in Westchester County, New York. A lot of people tragically lost their lives and um, just a lot of bad things, flooding and whatnot. So my thoughts and prayers with the family, with the people, rough situation, really is. I, I, I haven't seen rain like that by me ever. And I've been living in my town like 20 years and never seen that, but it's crazy stuff. I just hope everybody's doing as well as could be expected. Today I wanted to uh, touch on a few different things, so I'm going to dive into different areas and hopefully the episode is interesting. Uh, One thing I want to talk about that I'm directly involved in lately is uh, what's called a Rule 33 on a federal level, federal case which basically is newly discovered evidence. Anything that's new that developed or came to light that you didn't have prior to trial or during trial that could have impacted the case presented by the defense team. And fortunately, lately, there's been a lot of, which I spoke about a lot of different podcasts and a lot of different appearances by some informants who carry over the different cases I'm involved in and different defense teams that have contacted me about their client, where they could benefit from some of the information. But I don't want to get too deep into that. I want to be a little general about it and just discuss how it works and the thought process behind it, at least from my point of view. Normally, when you have a case, after the case is over, if you don't get a favorable decision, unfortunately, and um, you get a guilty verdict and then you move on to phase another phase where you try to fight that the case wasn't a fair trial. The defendant did not get a due process or a fair, fair process where in the eyes of the court. And uh, normally that's all based on the appeal. You put together an appeal based on all those different elements and all those different factors. And that goes to an appellate court, which is a panel of three judges on the um, federal level when they review the appeal and they make a determination on the appeal. There are three new judges uh, in the appellate court and they they make a decision based on the brief submitted before them for, for an appeal and go over each is- issue and analyze each issue and see if there was a a problem whereas the defendant was not given a fair trial, just to simplify it. It's obviously a lot more complex than that, but just to simplify it, that's the general outline of, of how it works. 
so when there's a Rule 33, normally, the normal process for Rule 33, if, if you watch them, they, they normally go in after the appeal's exhausted. Normally, you get a Rule 33, you put in the appeal, and if, unfortunately, you lose the appeal, and newly discovered evidence comes into place, you could then resubmit to the district court, which means you would go, the Rule 33 does not go initially to the appellate court, it goes to the sitting judge that was on the case, so you have to put that in, and then they decide if whatever was newly di uh, discovered entitles the clients or the defendants to a new trial. My experience, what I'm experiencing now, it's going to work a little opposite of that. And the mindset on that, my mindset on it, and a lot of the, uh, and the defense team agreed with me, because of the weight and the value of a lot of the newly discovered evidence that is coming to light based on a lot of what these informants are saying. Now, remember, if they go out there and they start saying things that contradict or were not part of the files that the defense team obtained on the informant prior to trial, it's newly discovered. So if they're saying criminal acts they were engaged, engaged with, or if they're changing stories about what they told in their debriefing or their 302s, the 302s are uh, pretty much the notes the agents take when they're debriefing the informants. They'll write down everything that the informant's saying, which when you think about it, you would think nowadays that stuff would all be recorded, you know? I, I don't know why it's not. Just to, just to make sure, not intentionally, in case uh, whoever's writing the notes makes an error, miss... miss misstate something inappropriately, you would figure there would be audio and video. I'm just surprised they're not just a side thought. Uh, it would make things a lot clearer if you have the transcripts and you don't have to worry about error, whereas something was dictated improperly. But that's neither here nor there. I was just sharing that. But anyway, so when, they, when you start hearing statements, and a lot of people think, well, the statements weren't made under oath, so it doesn't count. That's not true. I don't know where they pulled that from. But that's not true. It has nothing to do with being under oath. It has to do with material information being disclosed at a different time, whereas the defense team wasn't aware of this information prior, then the defense team has the right to find out and investigate it. Well, when did you know about this? Why wasn't this part of the 302 notes? Why wasn't this part of the file? So it raises a lot of questions that need to be answered by the court. So when you submit a Rule 33 now, you go in front of the court. So if you do it in a reverse order, which is what I'm talking about, where a Rule 33 will be submitted prior, here is why I like that strategy. And I'll explain it, and it could be helpful for defendants and for attorneys, uh, just to have a little insight into how our defense team viewed, viewed certain things. If... Critical statements are being made that changes prior testimony and prior debriefing records that are pertinent to the facts of a case. It's important to get that on the record. And why I favor putting in the Rule 33 prior to the appeal is because anything on record you could then use for the appeal. So let's say you don't have much hope in a district judge. Because remember, when you submit the Rule 33, it doesn't go initially to the appellate court. It goes back to the district judge. So you technically have to ask the appellate court for some time and let them know we need some time on the appeal. We need to halt it for a little bit, almost 
like a freeze. You know, you're freezing the appeal for a little bit of time. You're asking for time to submit the Rule 33 first because you want to put that, present that to the sitting judge that was on the case. Now, if you don't have much faith in the sitting judge that was on the case and you don't think, uh, unfortunately, based on rulings and stuff, that past rulings, you just don't think it's going to work in your favor, you don't really do a Rule 33 for that purpose, in my opinion, in my strategy. What you do it for is getting it on record so then you can use it for the appeal and it makes the appeal that much stronger. Because now what you could do is you get it on record. Let's say the sitting judge denies it. That's fine. Now you're able to use that material to enhance the nature of your submitted final appeal. So you're able to then take that Rule 33 that you did submit to the sitting judge, and if they deny it, now, now you could use it for part of the appeal. If you don't submit it, you can't use it for part of the appeal. You have to wait. So if the judge denies it, now you could take that material, take that all, all that information, and then tie it into what you had for an appeal to further improve the validity of the appeal you're going to submit. So to me, it's a win-win. I don't see the downside of it because I know a lot of people wait till after the appeal is exhausted and then they'll, they'll, they'll go for Rule 33 if information does come to light. But by using it beforehand, and let's say the sitting judge knocks it down and doesn't agree that you're entitled to a new trial based on the newly discovered evidence, well, then you could then take that ruling, take all the information, take the submission of the Rule 33, package it together, and combine it with your final appeal. When you do submit your appeal, you can now utilize that. So all that new information that came to light, you can now utilize that to enhance your appeal and make it that much stronger. Now, if you win the Rule 33 on the on the district court level, you get a new trial. That's how it works. If they decide the newly discovered evidence was so impactful that it would have changed the outcome of the case or the strategy of the defense, which is definitely the situation that I'm dealing with, uh, a lot of what's coming to light would have completely changed the strategy, uh, changed the cross-examination, changed a lot of things, even, even perhaps the rulings if the judge was aware of certain things. So if you win on that level, you get a new trial, and you don't have to go for the appeal. You, you get the new trial at that stage. But if you don't, then you can combine it. You take the information that you submitted, you take the record, you take the minutes from the judge's ruling, and you incorporate that into your appeal submission which, as I said, goes in front of three judges, and then they vote. So you have to get two out of three, obviously, to win the appeal. So to me, it's a no-brainer for the defense teams listening, and defendants especially, because sometimes you got to push the attorneys if they don't understand what you're thinking. This could kind of lay it out. Sometimes you don't want to hold on to that Rule 33, and you want to use it in conjunction. So if you do lose... On the district court level, you're able to then take that and reutilize it almost for the appeal to enhance the strength of the appeal. So I, I, I believe, I just wanted to clear that up because I, I read a lot of comments and even a lot of YouTubes and, and they don't really know what they're talking about as far as how it works. You know, they're throwing different stages out there and this comes first. So I just wanted to clarify that up just so everybody has a, a basic understanding of that process and the point of it and, and what it means and what it could do and what it can't do. So 
Again, I know a lot of these podcasts is very difficult for family members to have to hear, for friends of defendants to have to hear where you hear these podcasts, these informants going on day after day and talking a lot of nonsense and telling a lot of lies. But the way I look at it, let them keep talking. It's only beneficial. I hope they keep going. Who knows how many lawyers are listening and defendants are listening that could utilize. And I'll tell you one thing. It's a whole different ballgame when you start transcribing these podcasts and you follow the podcast from the beginning to the latest one and you start reading the written words and how details change and how even the approach changes. You could tell, uh, again, I'm guessing, but you could almost pick up that a lot of this is uh, they'll be guided or, or maybe they'll get some input. I'm not sure. Again, I'm just guessing. Maybe they'll get some input from their handlers or whatever because they'll change their approach. You'll notice even the way they talk, they'll try to almost cover up some of their past mistakes. But when you have it in transcript form, it's almost too late because you're citing the transcripts and what they said it. So either way, they're going to have to explain what they meant and either way, you're going to get it on record and then it'll be up to the judges to decide what's nonsense and what's legitimate. So I can't stress it enough. I say it all the time, but for defense teams... It's very important. You grab all of these podcasts for nothing else. Put them on a hard drive. Keep them there. You don't know when they can help a defendant. Grab all these comments they make. Grab these live streams that they do. Grab the chats and the questions that they answer in the live streams. You got to capture it all because it creates a big picture. And it could be utilized in so many ways. I, I was talking with certain attorneys and I was explaining... And they agreed that if I was an attorney, uh, one of the things I would do is I would play so many of these things. I, I would show when these informants curse at people who are making uh, nasty comments. Like, show their true personalities. You could show their true temperament. Because remember, when they come into court, they try to put on this uh, well-instructed, professional persona which is eloquent, well-spoken, one with a high moral compass. You know, they really try to dress it up so whatever's being presented in front of the jury comes across in the highest of lights and the jury's impressed with the person sitting in front of them. So you have to show the other side to that. Let the jury see that it's an act. Show the jury when they're on these podcasts popping off, cursing at... cursing at... uh people making comments, abusing people, threatening people. I mean, what's going on now is crazy in this whole YouTube nonsense. I call it informant tube because that's really all it is. It's just a bunch of informants on YouTube telling the story they want to tell. So it's important to keep track of all that because it paints an important picture for the jury. You have to realize the jury is only going to see what the prosecution wants them to see as it relates to the informant and how they conduct themselves, right? So you have to be able to show the reality of the person sitting in front of that jury. You have to show that there's another side to them. There's a side that when they're not being coached and they don't have the pressure to act a certain way and they're able to be themselves, you need to expose that and show that. Show how they interact. Show how they threaten people. Show how they laugh at past crimes robbing people, whatever they've done for people. Show, show their true interaction. Show their comments. 
Because a lot of times they'll make comments not realizing somebody's screen capturing that or recording that, and they'll forget a lot of what they said in the past. They'll forget a lot of their comments. So make sure you have all that. Because if I was a lawyer, I would show all that. I would present all that in either my opening or my closing, and I would show, I would just explain to the jury, do not get fooled by the individuals you're going to see in front of you. That's not who they really are. I want to give you some insight into they really are. And you start showing not one, not two, not three, not four, not five. You go on and on. You show all these different informants with the same type of persona. Any reasonable person will start to understand, well, this is all an act. They simply didn't want to get in trouble. They have a vendetta against somebody, whatever it may be. They have an agenda. Uh, they want to get paid by the government. They Whatever it may be. They, they want to start over, whatever it may be. But by showing how they truly are on these podcasts, how they interact with, with viewers, how they interact with if they have co-hosts, uh, one of the podcasts had a behind the scenes, which they put up for like a day and took it down, but we grabbed it and you get a little insight on how the person really is, how they truly act. And now, <clears throat> even now, I've noticed um, that Frank Pesqua, who I spoke about, I believe on episode 37 and maybe another episode, but 37 for sure. You'll see the interview he did on that um, podcast show, John A. Light and Gene Borello versus the one he did now on Vlad TV. And it's very helpful in a lot of ways for defendants. Very helpful. And we're on top of that. But what's more important is notice the difference in the way he was speaking, the way he was acting, and things he was saying. I'm not going to get into too detail. Um, actually, the public will see it shortly once it's filed. Once certain things are filed, they're going to see exactly a lot of the things I'm talking about. They'll be able to pull that off a pacer. But my point just is you'll see a lot of difference, and it's important to keep note of that. You could definitely tell somebody had a conversation with them, told them to change things up on Vlad. You could definitely tell the approach was different. I remember at one time... Vlad asked him something, and he's like, I don't want to repeat what was said because I don't talk like that. It was really disgusting. Meanwhile, if you play the John A. Light video that he was on, the podcast he was on, you got to hear the things he said. He talks about his own mother and coming out of her private parts in a way. I mean, vile, disgusting, degrading stuff. And now he don't want to say that because that's not in his vocabulary. <laughs> Yeah, okay. It's in your vocabulary, buddy. You were just instructed not to talk like that because your true self is being exposed and they realize that it's really not a good representation of what the government wants to work with. So that's that's the reality of it. <clears throat> you know, and, and, and I bring him up a lot because, <clears throat> A, I have my own feelings on what type of person he is, but B, I notice he likes to make a lot of disparaging remarks at my family's expense. And it's funny because, you know, he can make those remarks. He's, he's, he's on podcasts, he's on Vlad TV, and, you know, he, he could talk as tough and as crazy as he wants. But the bottom line is who he is as a person is completely defined by what he says by his own words. I don't have to really say anything. He defines who he is just by his own words. And I'm noticing, too, what a lot of these informants are doing. They'll put, like, big names of the people they're talking about or any name of the people they're talking about in thumbnails. 
and in their um, in the description. And obviously, they do that for views. Let's call a spade a spade. They're doing it just to get views and clicks so they get more money, they get more advertising, they can make a living. But when you think about it, they're making money off of other people's names. That's the bottom line. They could twist it however they want. If they went on there and just spoke about themselves, I don't think they really have many views. They try to pick the big headline names and use those and incorporate them somehow in their podcast, in their thumbnails, in the description. So when people are searching, their videos come up and they get more views, they get advertising. If you notice, every one of these videos with the commercials nonstop before, they have all these commercials. My God, take it easy. Relax. <coughs> so they're really trying to drain it for as much as they can. And that's done a lot. That's done on different levels. I see it a lot even with a lot of these, uh, a big thing now with these channels or all these supposed documentaries. And they just use people's names and they're making money. Off of somebody's life. That's, you know, they could say whatever they want, but they're making money off of somebody's life. And what's unfortunate, I, I get emails, which was odd. I don't know why they'd be sent to me, but I got certain emails about people, family members who I don't know, but apparently their family was spotlighted in some of these uh, documentaries. And even some of these channels, they'll put up a lot of news, news fields, news feeds, I should say. Which, to me, you're just adding to the narrative. You're just flooding YouTube with all this negative negative imagery and narrative. And, again, I'm going to have a different way of looking at that. And I understand that. And I recognize that than the definite, than the, the public. I know people look at that differently and they, they want to see it for information. I guess I look at it more from just a family standpoint. And you see all these different things being done. We, with family members, with people you know. And they could call documentaries, They could, but the truth is 90% of it is nonsense. And I, I'm pretty confident in saying that because, again, I got emails from certain family members complaining about some of these documentaries telling me that it's wrong, it's inaccurate. I have no say in that, and I just responded, you know, I'm sorry you're going through that, but I really have no, no way of doing anything about that. Unfortunately, that's just the way it goes with YouTube and social media, people could go on there and say whatever they want. But when you think about it, that's all it really is. It's it's using names to get money, to get advertising, and it's making money off of, other pe off of somebody else's reputation. That's really the bottom line of it. I even had an internal struggle, believe it or not, when I did the story on Carmine Persico. I had an internal struggle using his name, but then I reminded myself, I said, Dom, you're not making any uh, money off of this. You're not making anything advertising. Nothing's monetized. You're just trying to clear the guy's name. So then I, I made peace with it. But my knee-jerk reaction was a, a little bit of hesitation because it's so ingrained with me really not to do that, not to make money off of somebody else's name, somebody else's reputation. I just don't believe in that. I don't think that's the right thing to do, but teach his own, I guess. And that leads me to this... Another thing I wanted to talk about that I see happening. You know, I'm in the background and I watch a lot of the videos and I, and I watch a lot of the podcasts. 90% of it is for uh, work-related, where I try to help different defendants or I try to build a database, just have things housed, have things transcribed, because who knows who it could help in the future, Right. 10% of it's entertainment. I, I just, if I'm bored at night or I want to turn something on, I want to see what's going on. Uh, 
everybody's sleeping because I'm a night owl, I'll, I'll, I'll go on to uh, different podcasts and see what they're all about. And one thing I'm noticing, a lot of these informants are getting, I believe I spoke about this, they're getting like banged up, for lack of a better word, that there's pushback going on or that they're getting trolled or, or they're having commenters not say nice things. You got to realize because they were so used to just pulling the wool over the public's eyes and everybody believing everything they said and they were walking around like superheroes. And now the public's starting to see, excuse me, I'm going to take a sip of uh, my coffee. And now the public's starting to see that what they're saying may not be that accurate. So they're starting to give them a little flack for that. And rightfully so. Listen, you go on social media, you you go in the public eye, you, you better be ready for it. That's what comes with the territory. But the point I want to make that I find, uh, I don't even know the word, I guess interesting and also troubling, is when they do get this pushback, they really go nuts to try to stop it. And I believe they're trying to stop it because they're worried it's going to affect their bottom line. God forbid they don't want anything affecting their numbers coming in. And they don't want anything affecting their cash. So what I've been seeing, whether it's true or not, I don't know. I can only go by what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. So I'm just talking as if it is true. I'm not saying it is because I don't know. I'd have to know firsthand to know if it's true or not. I'm just going by what people are saying and what they're saying themselves. A lot of these informants are getting so banged up that they're actually running to their friends who may be in law enforcement to help them find certain individuals Last week, a uh, informant podcast was saying they were going to expose uh, that mob rats exposed, which I talk about, and they hinted how they're having like their FBI uh, contacts help them find it. Now, I don't know if it wasn't made that crystal clear, so I may just be guessing, and I may be wrong, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. What are you going to do? But it sounded like that was the route they were taking where they're going to law enforcement to help them, and it just had me think, Think about all the news, or even for yourself, think about when you're on social media and how many times have you made a comment, you got some idiot who responds and then you're in like a little bit of a, a little bit of a virtual war with some moron, you're going back and forth and then maybe they take it too far and they start trolling you. That's just part of it, right? You block them and that's the end of it. You got to deal with it. You deal with it. Me, I don't block anybody because I'm a little twisted like that. I like to go at it. So, But I understand the reason for blocking. It's a good thing. If you don't want to be bothered, just block the person. That's what the normal person does, right? But these informants, they're able to call on the government, call on law enforcement to help them track people down and stop trolls. I mean, imagine that. Imagine the average citizen has nowhere to go. They could be getting tormented online. And, we, and we've seen this play out, unfortunately, and sometimes tragically, where somebody's getting bullied online time and again, and we've seen, they, you know, they'll try to go to law enforcement, they'll try to go to whoever could help them, and they never seem to get the help they need, the trolls never stop, nobody's investigating them, nobody's tracking them down, nobody's exposing the trolls and making them stop, but these informants have the ability to go and make calls and complain and actually have, now if that's true, imagine that, our tax dollars are going towards finding trolls that are bothering informants, <laughs> imagine that, crazy nonsense if it's true it's just crazy and to me i just find it very telling how they could give it go on for years talking about family talking about this one that one and the second they start getting some things that aren't 
just fanboys and gals kissing up to them and believing their every word, they lose control. They really spiral. And you could see it. You could hear how they talk, how they interact. It really gets to them. And that's all about ego. They have such a big ego that they think everybody loves them and everybody should see everything the way they see it. You got to get that out of your head. Listen to me. Everything I say on my shows, to me, makes perfect sense. To me, very commonsensical. I understand it. It's my rationale. It's my reasoning. But I would never be so arrogant to think that whoever listens to what I'm saying should believe exactly the way I do. That's an arrogant position to hold. I say what I want to say for those who are interested and for those who are open-minded and maybe people don't see it a certain way and then they'll, they'll have that moment when they say, oh, okay, that makes sense. That's why I do it. I don't do it to convince anybody or change anybody's mind. I'm not that arrogant to think I have that kind of power and that everybody should think like me. And Perfect example, this whole informant thing. I find it crazy. To be, to be blunt, I find it crazy if somebody has the position where they come out and say, oh, I don't like informants, I don't like, they always say rats, I don't like rats, and then in the next breath, they'll name an informant who put somebody away and say, well, he isn't that bad. I don't really consider him a rat or an informant. <laughs> like, to me, that's pure insanity. I don't even understand that. To me, there's some things you have to have a hard line on. Either you agree with it or you don't. And either way is fine. Listen, that's your thing. But be honest with yourself. Don't say... You don't like informants, but you don't like this informant. No, that just simply means it's not that you don't like informants. You just don't like certain people, which there's nothing wrong in that. Just be honest about it. It has nothing to do with this person being an informant. I don't have a hard stand on informants. It is what it is. But uh, this one I don't like, not because he's an informant. I just don't like him for reasons A, B, and C. And this one I do like for reasons A, B, and C. At least that makes more sense. I may not agree with it. But that's irrelevant. At least it makes more sense. But to say you get so many people, and I see it, I see it in comments. I see it on on. It's it's insane to me. You get people going, I hate rats. I hate informants. I hate the. But this one's okay. He, I don't consider him a rat. <laughs> what? What the hell's your definition of a rat? You don't consider him a for? I don't know. And again, I don't like to get into that because those are my personal beliefs. And I, I try to keep this this channel uh, a little more general and just to have people understand how things play out, how things go on in the criminal justice system. <coughs> Excuse me. So, but I, I had to voice my opinion on that because it just keeps happening time and again and I don't understand it. If you don't have a hard line, fine. But don't act like you do and then pick and choose. It's really not something you can just be honest and say you don't like this person because it is, but just drop the whole term of saying rats and because it sounds ridiculous. Either you, either you believe one way or you believe another way. You can't be in the middle picking and choosing. That's that's insanity to me. It really is insanity. But that's again, it goes back to what I was saying before. That's my personal perception on things. That's how I grew up. Those are things I believe. I don't know if I'm in the majority, the minority. From the comments I read, I believe I'm in the minority, but hey, it is what it is. I was never the type to worry about being in the majority. I do things because I want to do them or I say things because I believe in them, and I really don't care who aligns with it and who don't. The only people I care about their opinion are my family and my close friends. But I will say this, 
and I spoke about this. It was a very nice surprise, and it continues to be. I value the subscribers and, and the viewers because I never would anticipated so many people to agree with the way I lay things out and the way I say things. I was pleasantly surprised, and I value every single one of them, and I'm glad it gives me a little bit of hope to see that there are like-minded individuals with the same belief system and the same moral compass where it comes to certain things. I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. It's just nice to have people believe in the same things you do and understand your train, train of thought on certain things. It's a refreshing change. I'm used to the other way around where uh, people tend to not see things the way, <laughs> the way I see them, and that's fine. So that's why I only have a few, few solid friends because I keep my circle nice and small because we have a lot of things in common. We see things the same way, and we all get along. And we don't try to push our way of thinking about things on everybody else. We know what we believe, and that's fine, what everybody else believes. But when you start seeing all the hypocrisy that takes shape, man, it really is incredible. It really is. And that's what people don't realize with this platform opening up the door for informants to have an outlet to tell their tales. And I'm not going to get into it because I did a whole episode on it. You're, again, just to revert back to the ideology of the episode. Remember, you're only getting one side of the story. Just remember that. Just keep that in mind. And then you put whatever stock into it that you want. But just remember, you're only getting one side of the story. And when you only get one side of the story, obviously a lot is being left out. And that goes for a lot of things. When people, If you're only hearing one side... It's, you have to just take that into account. Even what I, what I give on here, I try to just give an outline of how the law works or how certain things take place. Those are facts. That's not really opinion-based. What I'm telling you is the fact of how things, how things are, how things play out and how things take place. Those are facts. I could, I could cite experiences. I could, I could cite exactly what took place. I could cite motions that were knocked down. I could cite a lot of things to support what I'm explaining to my audience. With that said, I also factor in a lot of opinion-based back and forth that I give you. And I recognize that. And I say it time and again. It's my opinion. It's the way I view things. I don't think it's right or wrong. It's not an area of right or wrong. It's just different. Everybody has their view. Everybody has their perspective. And that's the way it goes. Some people align with mine, some don't. Some people listen to what I just said before about informants and say, no, there's different levels. And I don't see it that way. I'm not saying you're right, I'm wrong, or I'm right, you're wrong. I'm just telling you I don't see it that way. And I can't see it that way. Internally, the way I'm built, I can't see it that way. And to me, it's crazy. I can't even wrap my head around it. But people, at the same token... As I always say, there's a flip side to that coin. People may hear what I'm saying now and say, oh, he's off base, or of course he's going to say that. That's the way. I don't care, but it's the truth. I just don't relate to that. I don't relate to different levels. I don't relate to this guy's good. At least this guy didn't do that. At least I don't relate to that. Either you agree with them or you don't. That's how I see it. Very easy. Another thing I just wanted to mention, uh, there's a show, a podcast called Mob Talk Radio. And the host of that show is a gentleman by the name of Jeff Carnese. And his last podcast that he did, he actually mentioned my, myself and my show. And it was a uh, pleasant surprise. He spoke favorably about the podcast. 
and I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm glad that he finds value in it, and I'm glad that he enjoys it. And I, I, I thank him for mentioning it and for even discussing it and telling people to subscribe. I appreciate that. Um, the other thing I see going around that really gets under my skin because for me, I believe they're using it to diminish what is being done. And they're using it in a way to put a term to label it so that people dismiss the message being said. And let me explain a little bit and go into that. What's happening a lot when a lot of a few of these pushback channels, Mob Rats Exposed, um, there's another one actually, Crimes and Organization, I believe. I haven't watched that many of the videos, but the couple I've seen, the lady actually streamed my episode about Carmine Persico, so I, I appreciated that. Um, Mob Talk Radio, from what I saw, he, he's also the same way with informants. He doesn't speak highly of them. He's, he doesn't, you know, they, they, that doesn't appeal to him, so he makes his opinion known. But th those shows, when they voice their opinion and they point out inconsistencies with the informants and they point out blatant lies, I notice a lot of the comments and a lot of the pushback, it's always people saying, oh, you're a mob groupie. I find that hilarious because here's why I find that funny. They use that term to devalue the message being sent. They're using that term, and it's a smart approach in this way. They're trying to use that term so the general public listening will just brush off whatever the material is or the content is. This way the public will say, oh, well, they're mob groupies, so whatever they're saying can't be taken seriously. Or they're glorifying the mob. That's the other big thing. That's what I was actually thinking of more, more so. Glorifying the mob. And they're just very foolish because I know for myself and I know for what I've heard on these other shows, that's not what it's about. Nobody ever will tell you. In one way or another, mob's great, we're glorifying the mob. That's not the message at all. Forget about that nonsense. You're using that term to diminish the value of the content. You're using that term because you don't like what is being said. So you're trying to use a term to minimize what is being said or to make it nonsensical so people don't even listen. That's what you're trying to do. It has nothing to do with glorifying anything. It's standing by certain truths. For example, with the Carmine Persico issue, uh, episode, people were trying to say, oh, you're glorifying them up. If you believe that, you're a moron. Nobody's glorifying anything. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the bigger picture. You can't label some, somebody something if they're not. You can't take the liberty of putting out false rumors or making somebody an informant when they're not an informant. Right, wrong, or indifferent, you just shouldn't do it. And for those who think it's mob glorifying, you're just being a moron because you don't want to accept that that's not the right thing to do. It's not about saying, oh, we hate rats, he was never a rat. That's not what it's about. That's irrelevant. What it's about is you have on the daily news the cover saying this gentleman was a rat when he's not. That's what it's about. It's not glorifying anything. And you tr throw that term out. I remember a while ago, one of the co-hosts of a show, um, there, was, there was some positive articles being written on certain sites. Unfortunately, the sites are not around no more. But there's certain sites where they were just talking about the defendant's perspective. 
and how the defendant looks at things. And this co-host brought up the question. I guess he was reading it, and for some reason it banged him up. Maybe it was messing with his bottom line because he has his co-host is an informant, so he didn't want anything messing with that. So he started using the term, uh, what do you say, mob lives matter. You know, he's trying to do a play on the black lives matter. But again, by doing that, he's trying to minimize what's going on. It has nothing to do, nobody's saying mob lives matter. That's not what it's about. If you can't comprehend the bigger picture, you better go back to school and get more education because it's too much uh, at a higher level that you can't grasp it, I guess. I don't know. But it has nothing to do with any of that. It has nothing to do with any of that. This ain't about glorifying anything. It's not about glorifying the mobs. It's not about mob lives matter. It's about people getting fair trials, people getting fair treatment, regardless of reputation, label, regardless of that. If you believe in fair trials and fair treatment, if you say you believe that, then you have to put that on the back burner. Whatever label, whatever predisposed position you may have on somebody, you have to leave that on the back burner and just analyze the facts. And when they jump in with these stupid catchphrases of glorifying the mob and mob, they're just being smart because they're trying to deflect from the real issue and they're trying to minimize it to make it that anybody who speaks up on a defendant's behalf, who may have some kind of label, who may be accused of being some part of some organization, anyone who speaks up on their behalf, they're glorifying the mob. Mob lives matter. That's what they try to do. So I just want the public to see that game and dismiss it because that's not what it is. And I'm not saying some channels don't glorify it. I have no idea. I'm talking about the ones I mentioned. I'm talking about my channel. There's nothing to do with any kind of glorification. That's absolute nonsense. And that's just a way to deflect that you have an informant show and you want to push the informed, see what's happening now is, it's very easy to see when you take a step back. They're trying to change whereas the informant is the hero. The informant, and that's fine. That's what you want to do. It's fine. Maybe some people agree with it. But some people aren't. So when people don't agree with that, you can't right away say they're glorifying the mob. And, no, maybe somebody just doesn't agree with being an informant on any level. Maybe they're the type who doesn't agree with, listen, when I was in school, if me and my friends were doing something, because I wasn't always the best student. I, I was pretty mischievous, and uh, I caused my parents a lot of a lot of headaches, I'm sure. But if me and my friends were doing something, and one of and one of the kids in the class like told on us, we didn't like that kid. Mind your business. You know that's how we looked at things. It doesn't always have to be so extreme that it's you know at the mob level and you're glorifying. No, some people just have certain beliefs of mind your business, mind your business, focus on you. Focus on what you're doing. Focus on your mark on the world. Don't worry about what other people's doing. Maybe it's that simple. Maybe some people are just against informants because of that simple idea. But they don't want to hear that. They they want to believe that everybody loves these podcasts, loves who's on. They all love, no. A lot of people watch it, watch it for reasons that I I know a lot of people that I know watch it. Watch it for to help people to make transcriptions, to capture certain things. So don't get me wrong, they have a ton of fans. I see it. I mean, there's a lot of fans. And fine, whatever floats your boat. You got to listen to whatever you like in life. But what bothers me is when they try to, if somebody pushes back a little or somebody stands up for defendants 
or somebody gives you a different side of looking at things, right away they're labeled as glorifying something or, or a groupie or lives matter. Right away they go that route because they don't like the pushback. And that's all it is. They don't like that narrative. They don't want anybody... They're sensitive. I mean, for lack of a better word, they're sensitive. They don't want anybody pushing, you know, abusing them or saying something that goes against what they're putting out. I don't know how you can be so sensitive when you're on a public platform. I couldn't care what comments I get here. I couldn't care. And the way I look at it, my information's all out there. You, you Google my company, you Google me, you'll find my office. I'm in my office six days a week. So anytime anybody wants to debate me in person, or I have no problem saying what I have to say and saying it to whoever I want to say it to. And the truth is, if I wasn't, I shouldn't say me, but if my counsel and people I trust who happen to be lawyers didn't advise me not to engage in certain ways because they're worried about how it could be twisted, trust me, I'd be much more confrontational. Trust me on that. And I'm getting close to the point. You know, when I see... I see thumbnails with family members' names in it, and I see constant talking and constant lies about family members. I'm getting very close to that point where I'll have to engage in the proper way and confront it in the proper way. I think I'm, I like to think I know how to navigate that properly, and I can anticipate how things would be twisted, and I'll counteract that and be transparent about it. And that's what's very important. Always be transparent, don't leave things to the unknown, because if you leave things a little ambiguous, then that leaves room for interpretation, where they could try to twist it, and then you would have to prove what your true intentions are. So my advice with anything like that, if you're dealing in certain realms, try to be very transparent, walk everybody through everything, let your intentions known very clearly and very distinctly, so they can never be twisted and used against you. So you don't have to fight to get the truth out. You laid everything out. You were very transparent. You had your intentions laid out. Just take that advice. Try to be very, uh, very systematic in how you do it. And make sure the, the, the plan is very clear cut and concise and laid out so it leaves zero room, zero room for interpretation. And um, I have a good way of navigating that. So I have a few... Again, like I said, it depends how things play out, but many times, and don't get me wrong, it's not always easy. I'm not a robot. Sometimes emotions take over and you want to call somebody out and say, you lying piece of you know what, but you can't. That's the key. As I get older and I get more patience and I start to learn how to do things and I start to learn that acting on emotion is not the right way to respond. That's the weak way to respond, actually. And and for myself, sometimes I have a weakness like that where I do, I want to react on emotion, but I'm able to take a step back, especially as I get older. I'm able to take a step back and respond appropriately. Because I spoke about this. What I'm working on now for a project to counteract a lot of this is I, I like to bring different sides. All we're hearing is one side. So the best way to bring a different side is you bring people connected to these different informants whether it's an ex, whether it's a sibling, whatever it may be. There's always somebody out there who has a different approach or a different point of view and can give you facts on their dealings, their direct dealings. So I'm working on a few of those episodes. Again, I have to make sure I'm comfortable with it. I have to make sure the people are comfortable with it. I have to make sure we handle it appropriately 
But I want to see how they react when that takes place. When the public gets a little insight on, into somebody who knows them directly and had a problem with them and could give facts and examples of what took place just to show their true character. So that's something I want to work on. But again, there's a lot of moving parts to that. I'm not 100% sold on it, and it's my idea, and I'm not even 100% sold on it. I like to make sure everybody's comfortable, protected, okay with it. I have to do it in a certain way because I have a certain code with things. I like it to be done in a certain way where it doesn't come off. That's hard to explain, but there's just there's a lot that's got to go on for me to be comfortable with it. But anyway, I think, listen, you get a lot of people I see, and I heard a lot of people, oh, I don't like this one. I don't like uh, MRE, I don't like uh, Mob Talk Radio, I don't like the... They, they don't like it for me because they don't understand the bigger picture. Here's the bigger picture. Right now, all you're getting on these channels on YouTube, when you type in certain people's names, all you're getting are documentaries, newsreels, b- BS stories informant podcast, that's all part of the same narrative. That all adds to that. So if you get jurors who are assigned to a jury, and we know, even if the judge instructs them not to go on the on the internet, you know they're going to go on the internet, right? You know they're going to look up all these different people, right? It's going to happen. They could pretend it's not, but it's going to happen. You get these people, they go and they start plugging in names of defendants, plugging in names. What's going to happen when all they see are all this, uh, all that's out there now? All they see is Story after story, headline after headline, newsreel after newsreel, documentary after documentary. They're going to lump everybody together. They're going to say, ah, well, they may not be guilty of this, but look at their bad reputation. And they're hearing the informant podcast. Oh, look how great this informant is. He's telling the truth. So those are the only sources they have when they're looking things up, right? Now, here's the bigger picture. You have these different channels. You have channels like Mob Rats Exposed. You have channels like Mob Talk Radio when he's talking about the character of these informants and the lies that they're telling. You have these different channels. You have channels like mine, which maybe I don't go into the details or I'm not as um, vocal as these other hosts are in their hatred towards certain people. I may keep certain things in, but the common theme is a little bit of pushback. The common theme is to show a different way of looking at things. So the more of those you have, the better. I don't care if it's on an elementary level. I saw some of these channels, it's just entertaining. They'll do funny videos. It's not about that. The cumulative effect of these things is what's going to help even out the narrative. Now, am I saying it's going to make it where it's dead even? Of course not. But at least there's something there, whereas prior, there was nothing. And that's the key. Prior, none of these things exist. Prior, everybody goes on the internet, they search on YouTube, on certain defendants, all they're going to get is negative. Now, as these things add up, they're going to get a mix. So who knows? They may play one of my videos, hear a different side of things. They may play Mob Rats Exposed video and see the lies that these guys are telling in addition to laugh, in addition to being, you know, entertained. But they'll see, they'll see at the, at the core of his videos is the lies being spread and the inconsistencies. Same with Mob Talk Radio, a uh, couple episodes I heard where he's talking about certain informants, he's giving legitimate 
citations of how they're lying or legitimate reasonings, whether it's relationships, whether it's uh, factual information for minutes, whatever it is, he's just giving a different side that shows, no, this guy's lying. So that's a good thing, and that's what people don't get. It's a good thing. Whether you agree with it or not, it's a good thing to have a balance, right? You don't always just want one side of things. You don't only just want to hear one side. You always want a balance. And then the person, the individual, will decide which way they align. But at least there's a balance coming. And the balance is an opposite of the current narrative that's been around for a long, long time. So I'm all for this pushback, whatever you want to call it. I'm all for this change in narrative. Whereas somebody goes on the internet, they search defendants, they search informants, they're not only going to get what the government may want them to hear, the narrative they want to have played out. It's like I told you with the Wikipedia episode. I did an episode on Wikipedia. That's a narrative that they're trying to put out. I tried to go on to somebody's profile and update it to add. They tried saying uh, this person was convicted of a crime, which they weren't, so I tried changing that. Again, legitimate information, factual information from court records. So I submitted the change. They undid the change. I asked them, why'd you undo the change? Went back and forth. They, they, they pretty much, and I'm paraphrasing, but they pretty much said court records aren't accurate. I almost fell off my chair. Are you insane? So court records aren't accurate, but you're citing books written by authors that are just putting stuff together. W wouldn't a court document be more accurate than a book or a newspaper article? Insanity. But that just showed me Wikipedia is the driving force of a lot of these narratives. And when you get all these other little shows, they're just adding to it whether they're running stories or they're, they're just adding to that narrative. So the pushback that I agree with is anything that adversely affects that narrative, anything that goes up against it, anything that shows there's another side to this whole story here. And you don't got to believe it. Believing it or not, it's a whole different ballgame. I don't care about that. It's just seeing, seeing the contrast, seeing the two different sides. That's what's important. And that's what I try to do here. I try to show different sides. I try to give my my personal opinion, but I also try to let you know how things are and how things played out through experience, through court documents, through submissions. Well, I think I talked long enough today. I said everything I had to say for now. Till next time. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justice tech pros.com till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off <laughs>